think I lost a little thing that goes in here. Hey, Pastor Lee, can you put your hand up my shirt and see if I lost something that goes in my ear? Oh, no, there it is. Thank you. All right. That's better. Thank you. Happy Mother's Day. Um, and you don't need to say you too, as uh, most people have said so far today. That's just an odd thing. It's like when uh, I'm flying and... Um, or someone's flying and you tell them to have a nice flight and they always say you too and you say, well, I'm not flying anywhere, but thank you for in advance for the next time that I fly. I will credit that to your account. Um, this is nothing to do with the message that we're talking about, but that final song, just wanted to share something with you. I, I fancy myself to be a hack of a music historian. And um, when Leonard Cohen wrote that song, he got a room at the Chelsea in Greenwich Village um, at a time when there was just tremendous music that was coming out of there. That's when Bob Dylan was writing um, his first few albums, and um, uh, Joni Mitchell was getting rooms there, and uh, Joan Baez and Chris Christopherson uh, wrote Sunday Morning Sidewalk from there. Uh, so a lot of great music that you might know from that era. And he set himself to write the perfect song. He believed that he was going to write a song that had absolute perfection. And he had 33 refrains to that song before he, he, he began to wean it down. And he was so driven to madness over the fact that he couldn't reach perfection. Obviously, the lyrics have been changed to reflect gospel truth. If you know that original song, not only does it not reflect the gospel, it, it's very antithetical to the gospel in certain parts. But he banged his head against the floor until it bled and he knocked himself unconscious. And there is still an area of the Chelsea um, or wood from it, where he was banging his head against the ground. And what a picture of what that song is trying to portray. His fault is that he was trying to reach perfection. And boy, did he write a beautiful song. A song that is, um, I'm pretty sure that I've recently heard after Let It Be by the Beatles. It is the most um, copied, copyrighted song of all time. Um, and his error was that he was trying to reach perfection without the gospel, and it, it drove him mad. So as we sing that song, and you're able to see those lyrics co-opted, I was uncomfortable with that at first, because I know what the original lyrics are. But if you think of songs like Mighty Fortress of Our God, I hate to tell you for those that just say we should be singing hymns and not be singing stuff like that, Martin Luther took bar songs from Germany and took a drinking song and put mighty fortress to our God to it. He took something that which was defaming to our Lord and he made it gospel drenched and famous for Jesus. And um, just no matter, it shows you that even though there's beauty in that, beauty will always be imperfect without the gospel to be able to restore the beauty that came that was marred by the fall. So anywho, a little bit of music history for the three nerds that probably care about that. Go and be well. Um, so it's interesting how the, the timing worked out for this message. When I started mapping out the book of Colossians, I realized that as we started this mini-series called Gospel Relationships, that we were getting to the husbands and wives passage over this week and last. 
And I already wanted to flip the husband's role and the wife's role, even though contextually verse 18 comes before verse 19, because verse 18 is actually given in relation to the husband's role. So I thought, how do you define the wife's role when it's given in relation to the husband's role without defining the husband's role? And Pete did a masterful job of that last week. And then I realized that the wives passage was falling directly on Mother's Day, which felt really providential and fortuitous at first. Um, But I also want people to know this was not forced. This was just um, hopefully an act of God. But um, when you preach a verse that has like eight words in it, and it's just wives submit to your husbands, you're not going to win friends and influence people. Um, So just so you're, in case you're wondering, I didn't pick that like, hey, here's a cherry picking of a Mother's Day text. Um, But the Lord did, so you better listen. Um, So we've been doing a mini-series within our series on Colossians on how the gospel shapes our relationships. Last week, we started looking at God's design for marriage, and it starts off with a husband who is submitted to and yielded to the Lord by submitting his life to the gospel of Jesus Christ is a picture of the church's submission to Jesus Christ. This week, we're going to be looking at the wife's call to submit herself to this Christ-submitting husband because sin has entered the world. Beauty, just like I mentioned of that song, is often marred. And it's unfortunate because as this is lived out, we have the clearest picture of the gospel in all human relationships on earth and in all of Scripture. Um, we see that Jesus, if you want to follow the progression of it, submitted himself to the will of the Father when he drank the cup of the Father's wrath. And he said, if you are willing, let this cup be passed from me. But nevertheless, thy will be done. And he submitted to give us eternal life. The church is called to submit to Jesus Christ as its Lord and Savior. The husband is called to submit to Jesus as a picture of the church's submission to Christ. And then the wife is called to submit to the husband. And as she does, it gives a beautiful picture of Christ's submission to the Father. We're going to see something that's circular and oh so beautiful as we go through this passage. So even though this has been marred by sin, So we see the gospel redeem this. It is actually one of the clearest and most beautiful ways to put the gospel on display. And that's what we intend to do this morning is make much of Jesus because he said that when the Son of Man be lifted up, I will draw all to myself. So we are going to lift up the Son of Man. Since there's only one verse here, what we're going to do is go to the parallel passages in Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3. So just so you know that ahead of time. I'm probably going to flow back and forth from the language of each of them seamlessly. I don't know that I'll always be saying turn back and forth, but it will be projected up behind me. So let's jump right in. It starts off pretty directly. If you look at verse 18, it just says, wives, submit to your husbands. So look with me at verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting to the Lord. No sense spending a lot of time getting to the thrust of this passage, right? Paul just sort of gets right after it, doesn't he? And, and he really doesn't hedge it. He doesn't qualify it. And he doesn't make any apologies for it. He simply puts it out there, straightforward, simple as a commandment. Wives, submit to your husbands. Cowardly men and angry feminists have made our job harder by putting baggage around these terms that probably did not exist when Paul used 
this terminology. So Paul was able to just put it out there and sort of take some things for granted as he shared this. So we need to spend a little bit of time because of just cultural baggage that surrounded this clearing away some muck. So let me spend some time clarifying our terms before we really get into the flow of thought so that we know that we're all using the same term and not just importing our own meaning into the term. First, submission is not just something that the woman is called to. Last week, we looked at how husbands are called to submit themselves to the Lord and every aspect of their lives unto the Lord. It's something that God himself practiced when he came in flesh and walked the earth. Jesus submitted himself, subordinated himself to the will of the Father. So with that being said, it's accurate to make the point that there has never been a human being who's ever walked this earth that is not called to what we're calling people to in this passage, which is the beauty of submission. Number two, get this. There's a couple of points that I just want to make sure that if you remember nothing, you're leaving with this and it's just like an arrow, crystal clear. So I want to say this as clearly as I can. Submission does not mean a difference in equality, just a difference in function. I'm going to repeat that because it's so important that you leave with that. Submission does not mean a difference in equality, just a difference in function. This is proven by Jesus Christ submitting himself to the will of the Father. He did not become less equal with the Father. Philippians 2, 1 through 11 spells that out. It completely makes it clear. Colossians 2, 9, which we covered a few weeks ago, makes it even clearer when we see that he was the fullness of deity in bodily form. So he placed himself under the Father in function, but Jesus was no less than the Father in value. That's what theologians call functional subordination within the God head. And it set an example of what subordination was supposed to look like and what submission was supposed to look like. Get this, Jesus never ceased to be equal with the Father. All of our creeds affirm that. If you don't affirm that, you're a Jehovah's Witness, maybe a Mormon, or just you don't believe the Bible. Um, but Jesus never ceased to be completely equal with the Father. So submission does not speak in any way to inequality. The woman is in every way equal and equivalent to the husband. But all that being said, I don't think that most people that struggle with an understanding of this term and this passage that it's theological in nature. I could sit here and theologize to you all morning long, and I don't think it would ever actually hit the heart that beats within your chest. Because I'll say over and over in this message this morning, submission is not a theological issue. Submission is a heart issue. I think that more than struggling with the theology behind it, people struggle with some of the baggage that came from this term, such as prior experience of abuse. Look, somebody that's been abused in the past, who's been under a heavy hand, is going to have a hard time letting go of the hurt that's come from that abuse. And if that's you, I'm so sorry. It's understandable that there would be baggage it would be laden within 
this term. And I'm sure just given the percentage that we see that abuse exists within society and the number of people in this room, that there are people who have come out from under abuse. And I'm sorry that it mars the beauty of a passage like this. So it can become distorted and give you a distorted set of lenses to see things through and cause you to see things in a rather jilted manner. So because of past abuses, you end up importing a meaning into this passage that Jesus never intended to be read into this text. And that's tragic because it obscures the beauty of a passage like this. And really what it does is it obscures the beauty of God's design that was laid out way back before the fall even, back in Genesis chapter I've seen just the pain of people having bad experiences marring their ability to see this text. I remember going to the conference, if you guys remember this years ago when there was the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood that Grudem and Piper put together. I got to go to the conference that they had for it out in Moody Bible Institute when I was going there. And there was a panel of theologians, some very complementarian, some egalitarian on the stage. And this woman just stood up and started to assert all of the things that she would never submit to. I would never submit myself to a man. I would never submit myself to a pastor. Women should be able to be elders. To say less so is inequality. The reason that I have for this is we've just seen men who have been overbearing for years. And it was really beautiful. If you ever read anything by R. Kent Hughes, his wife, Barbara Hughes, who wrote um, The Attributes of a Godly Woman, I believe, actually began to weep on this panel. And she said, I'm she was having a hard time composing herself. And the moderator said, are you okay? And she said, I'm just so sorry that that's been your experience. And that that experience has just robbed you from being able to see the beauty of God's design. And she turned to Kent next to her and said, I've been able to call this man my pastor and my husband. And he has faithfully modeled what I've seen in passages like this to where it is not a have to I get to submit to Kent. And it was awesome. Like you saw the entire place, which was half filled with very feminist people and very complementarian people. The whole place just stood up and just applauded as they just saw the humility that was just drenched from her heart. But because of abuses, it can take away the ability to be able to see passages like this clearly. Also, another way to mar it is just misunderstanding of the term from either poor teaching or lack of teaching. Let's be honest, lack of teaching is probably a, a reality on this. Nobody wants to stand up and look. You know that the church statistically in America is 64% women. So um, that means that by just sharing this passage that there's 64% of a chance that I'm going to offend um, more of the body today. So it's easy to just say, like, let's, let's skip this. Let's teach on Proverbs 31 this morning. That has some, some very easy and fun things to say. I'd say that's a common baggage. Nothing wrong with Proverbs 31, by the way. Beautiful passage. It's not where we're at in our text. There's no way of understanding this truth without understanding the stuff that Pete taught on last week on the husband's submission to Jesus. So people that have understood this as a one-sided perspective are going to have a skewed view on how they interpret the rest of this passage. And it's showing that 
it's something that's just not taught on accurately very often. So a lot of people have never really been shown what it is supposed to mean. Another reason for baggage is suffering from misapplication of this concept. That's sort of a combination of reasons one and two that I just gave you. If the man uses a verse like this in order to validate foolish, Nabal-like, abusive, cowardly actions, then a woman can end up kicking back against the topic itself when it's really the fool who ended up making this doctrine odious, not the Holy Spirit who wrote this in perfection. When it's not submission that's off base, but the foolish man that wrongly applied it for his own selfish pleasure and reasons. Did I just cut out? Bloop! Okay. Um, so another big reason for the baggage is allowing culture to define things instead of Scripture. This is a biggie in today's day and age. If you want to read something on this that's just really good, I would encourage you to read Pilgrim's Regress by C.S. Lewis, which talks about the dangers of allowing culture to define things rather than the Bible. But this is not a popular doctrine today, to say the least. Marcy and I, when we lived out in Colorado, we were planning on planting a church out in Boulder, Colorado, and I'm pretty sure that if you use the word submission within Boulder city limits... Um, I don't know, something awful, like a raging gang of feminist hippies just come and take you out. But it's one of those things within the evangelical camp that even some that profess to be evangelicals wish was not in the Bible. So scorned women look back to the culture to define the role of a woman in relation to the man rather than the Bible. And just a quick tangent, why would you ever take the advice of fools whose advice is not working. People who have been blurring the distinctions in marriage typically and statistically and every other metric that I could give you do not have successful marriages. So why are you going to take their advice just because they shout the loudest? I can shout loud too. Does that make me right? And also, have you ever met a happy feminist? I mean, honestly. They are just the most miserable people. If you're here and you're a feminist, you know, I was going to apologize. I'm not sorry. You're, we both know you're miserable and repent. Of, that's, that's the stuff I say that gets me into trouble. Um, but for real, why do you always want to burn something? Every time I'm around a feminist, they want to burn something, shout something, or do something obnoxious. So why take counsel from a group of people whose defining mark is their unhappiness. I don't know. That's not the way that I would look for counsel if I was looking for somebody to speak into my life. At the heart of the baggage that prevents a biblical understanding is just having an unsubmissive spirit that doesn't want to understand the concept. We're going to stress over and over and over in the next 15 minutes before I finish this message that submission is a heart issue. Jesus' submission to the Father... Look, even though he knew that it meant his impending death was a heart issue. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, because it was a heart issue for Jesus to subordinate himself to the will of the Father. My daily submission to Jesus or my lack thereof and my decision to take back control of my own life is a heart issue. 
for the woman that's pushing against the clear biblical teaching of Colossians 3.18. That's a heart issue. I can't argue you into it, no matter how good my Greek, no matter how good my hermeneutics. Ultimately, it's a gospel issue that the Holy Spirit has to settle in your heart. And if the gospel shows us that Jesus Christ, get this, Jesus Christ, who is God, very God, and equal to God in every way, chose to submit. What is it that's so unique about you that you would think that something that applied to God himself would not apply to his people? So moving on from the baggage, that will be the last that I make of any uh, qualifications here. What does the term actually mean? I really wanted to study this and study it from a lot of angles because it's a misunderstood term and misapplied context. So I want to make sure that we're actually teaching this the way that it's supposed to be taught because you can't call somebody to do something that they do not understand and then expect that they will do it rightly. So I studied every Greek usage of the term in the Bible, hypotasso this translated submission. Each biblical usage, each New Testament translation of the Old Testament, which we know as the Septuagint, each usage in ancient Greek Koine literature, each usage and interpretation by every one of the church fathers, each translation. That probably sounds more impressive than it is. I have software where I just type in one word and just goes and spits it out to me. But I did read them after it spit it out. But all that to say that biblically, contextually, linguistically, historically, submit always means submit and has always been translated submit regardless of the translation, regardless of the linguistic barriers. So we make no apologies that we believe in the biblical doctrine of submission. I would say that most women who profess to be Christians would not have much of a problem with at least the concept of submission. Part of our belief here is that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, holy, perfect, without error in the original manuscripts, word of God, believing every single word, even when it's not convenient to the lifestyle that we would like to live. So if you claim that it just doesn't apply to you, then you have a way bigger problem than your interpretation of Colossians 3. You have a problem with God himself, and you have a problem with the authority of Scripture and you probably have a problem with authority in general, the hardest word in this passage, in the parallel passages, though, is not even submit. The hardest words are the rest of the verse, as is fitting to the Lord, or as Ephesians 5 puts it, in everything, or as the church submits to Christ. Because in everything, just like the word submit means submit, guess what in everything means? It means in everything. So this is usually where the disclaimers begin to come in, even though the Holy Spirit didn't see a reason to put any disclaimers in there. So obviously, look, the one disclaimer, you're not supposed to submit to sin. If your husband is calling you to sinful behavior, you're not supposed to go along with that. That is the disclaimer, but unless it's an issue of sin, everything means everything. The other difficult term in the parallel passages as the church submits to Christ. 
This is what defines what our submission is going to look like. So there's not much point pointing out what submission is in isolation because the commandment is not based, based on an isolated term. It's not just saying wives submit. It's telling the wife to submit as the church is called to submit to Jesus and as is fitting to the Lord here in Colossians 3.18. So the only proper way to exegete this passage and to take anything away from it is to ask the simple question, how does the church submit to Christ? And I have eight examples for you. The church submits to Christ as the leader. We don't try to wrestle away leadership from Jesus. Ephesians 5.23 makes that super clear, as did Pete last week in his message. Two, the church trusts that Jesus will lead us well. It's not like we look to Jesus when we think that he's going to lead us well, but then we outsource leadership to some kind of superior level if Jesus begins to lead us poorly and think that somebody could do us better because Jesus is never going to lead us poorly because he's perfect in all of his ways. Part of submitting to Jesus means that we trust that Jesus is the only game in town. It's not Jesus plus. It's Jesus, 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 Jesus. That's all that it is. And part of our sanctification is growing in our trust and submission in Jesus' ability to lead, even when it's difficult and even when the road is hard. The church, number three, seeks to lift up Jesus and hopes that people will see how awesome Jesus is as a result of looking at our church. We don't want people to look at our church and say, wow, what an awesome church. Wow, that guy's an articulate preacher. Wow, those guys are good musicians. We want people to look at the church and see one thing, Jesus. If you left here and what your takeaway is, is any of those things that I just named, we failed you. That's not what we want to portray. You're to look here, and we're just to be mirrors and glory reflectors so that you can see Christ. We as a church exist to magnify the name of Jesus, and we believe that part of our joyful submission to Jesus is to just be glory reflectors with everything that we have. Amen? The church... Number four, trust that Jesus is always supposed to be the one that we're led by and we are to never be led by another. Failure to submit was really the story of the whole Old Testament, wasn't it? That's the book of Hosea in a nutshell. I wanted to love you. I wanted to pour myself out for you, but here you are chasing yourself after other nations that abuse you, do not care for you the way that I would care for you. Come home, and you see heartbroken Hosea going after Gomer, saying, you don't have to go and outsource yourself to another. I love you. How many times do you see a heartbroken God in the Old Testament? Everybody looks at the Old Testament like Old Testament God was this God of wrath, and the New Testament is this God of flannel board Jesus. Hogwash. The Old Testament is a story of a heartbroken God who is calling an adulterous people back to himself saying, I love you. Why are you leaving? You have no idea the fireworks display that I have in store for you when I send the Lamb of God to be able to call you back to myself and to be able to fix that which sin marred. Jesus is dealing with the same thing as he laments over Jerusalem. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I longed to gather you together. I just, I just wanted you to come and be led by me and not be led to another. Submitting to Jesus means that you have your eyes just locked 
on Jesus. And that we're not led astray by someone who is not the true bridegroom. Number five, another way that we express our submission to Jesus is that the church submits itself to a lifelong commitment to Jesus. That's what you're seeing in Ephesians 5.24, not just when the relationship was fresh. Look, the Ephesian church that he spent the more pericope of verses, I was trying to think of a less nerdy word, but that's the only word that came to my mind, um, to be able to describe this, is the same church that he had to say in Ephesians chapter 2, what happened to you? You left the love you had at first. Remember the love you had at first and from where you have fallen, repent and do the deeds you had at first. Husbands, husbands, every one of you, look me in the whites of the eye right now. May it never be said of you that you've left the love that you had at first. Fan into flame that love that you've had at first. Young men, don't look to other young men and be the fools of Solomon. Look to gray-haired men that still show off their wives like they're a brand-new Cadillac every time they show up somewhere. Look to the men that say, boy, have I outkicked my coverage in every way, and I have married so far. But look to them and ask them, how do I love this woman that God has given me? Don't look to young bucks like me, even though I barely fit in that category anymore with some white coming in in my beard. Number six, the church is committed to not let anything in between them and Jesus. That was the calling in Genesis 2.24 when we were called to leave and to cleave, to cling so tight that not even air could get in between us and Jesus. Submission, it's actually a theme throughout the book of Ephesians that sin separates. Part of our submission to Christ is don't let sin separate. Number seven, the church seeks intimacy with Jesus as a way of life. Submission to Jesus was not just a one-time action. We daily choose to submit our will to the will of our Savior. And if you don't, you will take your will back. I promise. And number eight, the church is constantly reminding themselves of the reality of their covenant relationship with Jesus, which is why we do this. And that's what we're going to end with. And friends, all eight of these points apply directly That's why marriage is such a beautiful gospel illustration to how the wife is to submit herself to the husband. Number one, the wife, the church submits herself to Christ as the leader. We do not try to wrestle away leadership from Jesus. Ladies, God has designed you to be led by your husband and has designed your husband to be the leader of your home. This is one of the biggest areas that we see that comes First, from the curse in Genesis chapter 3, God told the woman that the husband would lead her, but he also said, as a result of the curse, your desire would be to usurp that leadership and to be able to take it from him and to try to rule over, to a, rule over him as gospel-changed people who are being renewed by the grace of the gospel. We don't allow the curse to dominate our relationships. 
So to follow the analogy of Ephesians 5, which we've seamlessly back and forth with the analogy of Christ and the church analogy, when you're fighting to wrestle authority away from your husband, it's like the church fighting to wrestle authority away from Jesus. And that's not a church that I would want to attend. And it's sin. So men, again, Check this out, man. This means that we're called to step up and to lead and to be a man who's worth following. Love your women enough where you are not creating environments that foster sin. Love your women enough where submission is not something where it's like, woman, submit! Love your women enough where they say, that's the man. That's my man. That's my man that I want to follow. Lead them. And women, give him grace. He's not going to do it well all the time. Your husband's a sinner. There's a great book on marriage called When Sinners Say I Do, which is all about the concept of why is it shocking when problems come in, when sinner marries sinner, and now you just have a cataclysmic effect of sinners, and they start making little baby sinners that run around the house. Look, he's not going to lead you well all the time. But I'm going to tell you something that I've seen in women. If you've done this, I'm going to call you out on it. And if you've done this, I hope you feel called out and repent as a Mother's Day present to yourself. <laughs> One of the easiest ways to crush a man's spirit is to say, my husband never leads me. I need to just go to this or that because my husband is not a leader in this home. And then he tries to lead and you crush him under your heel when he tries to step up. It's emasculating. I've seen it in counseling situations over and over. You know what it makes men want to do? It just makes them want to turtle up. They don't want to say like, oh, that was fun. You know, I've been accused of not doing this for 30 years. I attempted it and then I just got whacked upside the head. How about I try that again tomorrow? Please. I talk to too many men who get bullied over not leading well. This doesn't say... Wives, submit to your husbands, but just bully the heck out of them if they don't listen and just nag them until they go and build a shed on the corner of the roof. Bullying doesn't make them want to lead well. It makes them want to give up. One of the greatest ways you encourage your man to lead is to yield to his leadership and to help him be a leader by being somebody who's willing to be led. That's the whole example of Sarah and Abraham in 1 Peter chapter 3. If you don't know that story, Abraham was being a straight fool in 1 Peter 3. But Peter quotes that to show just how godly Sarah was being and the way that she loved her husband. As you do that, it empowers him to lead better. The church trusts that Jesus will lead us well. For many women, the reason that they're not led is simply because of a trust issue. Somewhere along the line, they decided that they lost trust in the husband's ability to lead. So they decided that they were going to take over the reins and do it themselves. And ladies, this isn't always vocalized. This can be done in secret. This can be done with an eye roll. This can be done with a huff and a puff if you don't like the way that he's leading. Doing things with a heart of, well, I just won't tell my husband about this because what he doesn't know doesn't hurt him. And, because, and besides, if he did know that Homer Simpson of a man would just go and potentially mess it up. That's what I mean when I say submission is an issue of the heart. You can have all the appearances of submission, 
but still undermine trust in your heart. Jesus wants your heart. If you hear anything from today's sermon, it's Jesus wants your heart. Jesus wants your heart. I'm not calling you into mindless obedience. I'm saying Jesus wants your heart. The church seeks to lift up Jesus and hopes that people will see how awesome Jesus is a result of looking at our church. I told you that a good church is a good church because it's known and renowned for showing off Jesus. A submission wife, submissive wife should want to show off their husband. Ladies, this is an area where you can shine the gospel into a world in a way that needs to hear it because insulting husbands is the end thing to do. Every movie starts off with deadbeat husband, heroic mom, deadbeat husband gets brought to his knees, and now he gets brought back, and oh, wow, he wasn't an idiot all along. Al Bundy and Homer Simpson have become the iconic men of our culture, but lifting up men and showing off your man, that is being a wife. Deviate from the notes, and I don't care that I'm getting a couple minutes long-winded on this sermon. That is an area where my wife knocks it out of the park. She just wants people to know that's my man, and I love my man. And guys, if you know me, I'm an idiot. Like the fact that she just wants to show me off that much shows that she really trusts this verse and that it's a heart issue, and it's not just because I'm killing it in this at all times. The church trusts that Jesus is always supposed to be the one that we're led by and not led by another. Look, you might be, um, this might be more for the husbands here than the wives. But I'm just going to put it frank because I guess I've been saying everything else not frankly. I'm not your wife's primary pastor. You are. Don't make my job harder by being a coward at yours. Amen? The submissive wife is going to look to be shepherded by their husband. The church submits itself to a lifelong commitment to Jesus. I told you, not just when the relationship is fresh and new. You should be getting more committed as you go along, not less. I, in my community group, I have Russell in the Mills. Sorry to put you on the, the spot. But I just look at the way that that guy looks at his wife. And what are you, 72? Am I close? 80? Should the Lord let me live to 80, which he won't, um, I, I want to look at my wife the way that that man looks at his wife. That, those are the examples. I, I want to be able to say, I, I want people to be able to look at me and be able to say, just by the looks that we exchange, I am in love with my wife the way that that man is in love with his wife. You, you really just, you knock it out of the park, brother. Sorry to put you on this. Yeah. Amen. The church is committed to not let things get between the church and Jesus. First Peter 3 used that analogy of the husband and the wife and Christ and the church, and it makes the point that the analogy is so tight that, that when there's a break of intimacy, our prayers are actually hindered. We're to fight to allow no air between you and your wife. How dare you go to bed with malice in your heart towards your spouse and just say, ah, it'll resolve itself tomorrow when the Bible clearly says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Let no sin separate in that relationship. 
When you permit it, it creates a law of diminishing returns, and you'll permit it more and more, and that's when relationships erode. The church seeks intimacy with Jesus as a way of life. A church that lacks intimacy with Christ is going to be a dry and crusty, boring church. A marriage that lacks intimacy is going to be a dry and crusty, boring marriage. When Jesus rebukes the church of Ephesus, he tells them, you guys are serving me, you're doing stuff for me, but where's the intimacy with me? And I fear that's where a lot of marriages are. You do stuff for each other. You've already learned for years how to do stuff for each other. You might even excel at doing stuff for each other. But doing stuff for each other, let me ask you, did, did you guys see Alan Janet up here singing together? Does doing stuff for each other in any way replace the beauty of seeing the two of them harmonizing songs to Jesus together and just knowing that they didn't just make that up on Sunday morning, that that came out of 50 years of faithful marriage to one another? You guys are precious, and you guys are another example that just radiates Jesus. Jesus tells the church of Ephesus to repent and find the love they had at first. That'd be a good start for a lot of people. That as they walk out of here, if you're having issues... Just say, where was that love? I, Evan, you know, because I know some of you have sat with me in marriage counseling. I've said to you, what was it that first captivated you about her? What was that, that first time you went, oh, my heart be still? What was it when you said, that's my woman, and I'm going to pursue her with every return to that? That's Ephesians chapter uh, 2. I mean, I mean, that's Revelation chapter 2. It's, Guys, if there's any application point I've ever given you, excel at intimacy. It's fun. That's your homework when you leave here. Excel at intimacy. Pursue intimacy. Be intimate with each other's hearts. And the last point that was correlated between each other is the church is constantly reminding themselves of the reality of their covenant with Jesus. That's why we wear these, guys. This ancient symbol that we put on our finger is just like this ancient symbol that we partake of that Seski's going to lead us in in a moment. Don't worry, I'm not going to light myself on fire because only Tara Crosby lights these with a real candle. Um, (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Happy Mother's Day, Tara. Um, That's why we wear the ring because we can look at it and say this is the covenant reminder of that day that Marcy put this finger on, on, on my finger and said, with this ring, I thee wed, and all my worldly gifts I give you, and everything in this life I share until death do us part. As you look at this, you're reminding yourself of a covenant. So as I wrap it up, let me give you just bullet point application points. Submission is a hard issue, not a religious act. If you hear anything today, make sure you heard that. Submission is a gospel issue, and refusal to submit reveals a misunderstanding of the gospel. Submission is an ongoing practice that we grow in, not a one-time act. Submission done rightly should not have to appeal to its own authority. You never saw Jesus play the Jesus card. The one time he even had the opportunity, he said, I could appeal to a legion of angels right now who would come down into this garden and smoke you guys, but I'm not going to do that. Submission shouldn't have to appeal to its own authority, just as Jesus didn't have to appeal to his own authority. Submission is a grace issue. No one is perfect at it, so give it grace. Submission is a circular issue that begins with the husband submitting to Jesus, the wife submitting to the husband, in terms helping the husband to be a godlier man who submits to Jesus, in turn making the wife more eager to submit to the husband and done well. 
the servant's taken out of the picture altogether and it just looks like Jesus. Submission is a picture of the gospel. Submission is a picture of a response to the gospel. Submission is a picture in this world of the power of the gospel. Submission is an opportunity to be like Jesus who showed what submission was by submitting himself to the Father's will. And we see it in the meal we're about to take. In Jesus' name, amen.